We started last week our series on the book of Romans, and we pick up with that today, reading the same seven verses as last Lord's Day. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who is born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Littleton and Gilbert West were two 19th century English lawyers. I think they call them barristers over there. They were uh, cousins as well. And, and they were religious skeptics. And as religious skeptics, they discussed together how they might be able to disprove Christianity. They decided that the two pillars on which the church was built were one, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave, and secondly, the dramatic, astonishing conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the man that we know as Paul the Apostle, the author of the Epistle to the Romans. West tackled the resurrection while Littleton's goal was to disprove the story of Paul's conversion. And since both were mostly ignorant of the relevant facts, they decided that considerable investigation was in order if their writings on the subject were to demonstrate any reasonable integrity. While they were preparing their books, they had a number of dialogues, and in one of them, West told Littleton somewhat sheepishly that he was growing convinced that there was actually something to the claim of the resurrection. We'll say more about that next Sunday. Littleton was glad his cousin had admitted this because he also was finding the remarkable story of Paul's conversion quite difficult to challenge. In fact, he told West that he believed the conversion of Paul just as the New Testament recorded it. And furthermore, he now believed Christianity to be true. West was both astonished and pleased because he too had taken a step of faith into the light of the gospel himself. Their books were published defending the validity of Christ's resurrection and the dramatic and inexplicable conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the Christian hater, into Paul, the apostle, the preacher, the author of the book of Romans, among many others. So that's the story of Littleton and West, and that story is quite appropriate for our meditation today from Romans 1, where we read a brief defense of both Jesus as the Christ and Paul as his apostle. Since Jesus is the more important of the two, we'll spend most of our time on him, but let's take a minute to wrap up our look at the author of the book of Romans. We saw last time that Paul described his office his calling as that of an apostle, his mission and his message as that of the gospel, and his attitude and disposition being that of a bond servant. If you missed that last week, it's available on YouTube or on the church's podcast. A few months back, a, uh, a pastor friend of mine sent me this. 
After listening to his owner drone on for hours, Ralph suddenly realized he was not cut out to be an emotional support dog after all. And uh, my friend sent me that picture with the comment that this is often how I feel as a pastor. <laughs> and uh, boy, I get it. I get it. Some weeks are tough. Uh, sometimes most all of us think that uh, maybe we're in the wrong line of work. I remember writing back to my friend, telling him that it was Thursday, but Sunday is coming. It's Thursday, but Sunday is coming. And by that, I meant to say to my brother that no matter what hard things come our way as pastors during the week, most of us have the opportunity on Sunday to stand up in front of a lot of people and tell them about the greatness and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And wow, wow, what a privilege it is to do that. I think you know that Paul suffered a great deal in his ministry. He had the same stresses that most pastors and missionaries have, plus all of the intense persecution that was uniquely his, well, at least compared to my experience. But how did he view it? How did he view it? Verse 5 says, he says that through Christ, he, Paul, had received grace and apostleship. Grace and apostleship. One is general, the other specific. One applies to all of us, the other to just a few. In Ephesians, Paul gives us more insight on how he viewed his role. Chapter 3, verse 7, of this gospel, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I, I love that verse more than I can say, especially that last part about the unsearchable, the, the unfathomable riches of Christ. So let's spend the rest of our time this morning, discovering what our text tells us about Christ. And oh, indeed, it is, it is rich. First, we see that Jesus is the promised Messiah of old. Paul was not unveiling a new religion, a new philosophy that just emerged out of nowhere. From the very start, his exposition in Romans, uh, of the gospel in Romans connects us back to the Old Testament scriptures. Indeed, Romans is constantly referring us back to the ancient book of God, starting with the second verse, which tells us this gospel was promised in the prophetic words of scripture. And one of the reasons that I have confidence that the Bible is truly a divine revelation is right here. Many books 66 to be precise, written by many different authors, written in different eras and different centuries, and yet all of these parts come together to form what is a remarkable, unified whole, which finds its center and its end in the person of Jesus Christ. Our author, the Apostle Paul, is skilled in presenting this. He speaks much in this letter of Abraham and of Adam. He understands law. He understands grace. He quotes from Moses. He quotes from Isaiah. He quotes from Hosea. He quotes from David. He quotes from Malachi. He quotes from Jeremiah. He alludes to the book of Daniel. He quotes also from Joel and Nahum 57 times. He quotes the Old Testament. Just to give one example, Chapter 9, verse 33, as it is written, behold, 
I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And that verse combines quotes from Isaiah, one from chapter 28, one from chapter 8. Paul pulls them together to clarify something, something important about... He's clarifying something important about about Jesus. (laughs) Isaiah was about Jesus. Romans is certainly about Jesus. So the apostle is telling us good news, which implies good news, implies something is, is new, but it is in line with something very, very old. And the new things had been foretold in many times and many ways in the Holy Scriptures. In the what? The Holy Scriptures, the Graphites, Haggaiites, the sacred writings, the Holy Scripture. Remember in college, uh, college Bible study, and uh, we were sitting around the room. I asked a young man, I was interested. I said, "What kind of Bible are you reading from?" And uh, and he uh, turned his Bible over and looked at it, and he said, I was wondering, was it an RSV, an a, 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 a KGV? He looked at it, and he said, oh, it's a holy Bible. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's right. 30 years ago, most all of us had a Bible that looked sort of like this, right? On the front, it said, holy Bible. And uh, Paul, Paul's fine with that. that. That is the Bible's view of the Bible, by the way. It is the historic view of the church as well. It is holy, it is sacred, it is divine, it is more than a human work, which is how it can promise beforehand what came to be in the person and work of Jesus. In the final portion of Romans, Paul would put it this way, chapter 15, verse 4, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Very good. So after connecting his message of Christ to the Old Testament Scriptures, Paul then goes on to reveal for us his mysterious character. Not Paul's mysterious character, but the mysterious character of Jesus. When you look at verses 3 and 4 of our text, you see Jesus described as being two things that don't seem to blend so well. He's called in these verses the Son of God, and he's called the descendant of David. Now, it would seem like you have to land on one of those two, right? But no. It is somehow both of these realities. Verse 3 says God made promises concerning his son. Verse 4 says that Jesus was declared to be the son of God. So that much is obvious enough. Paul is serving a master who is the very son of God, who is a divine person, one with the Father. And yet verse 3 makes this point about him being in the lineage of David according to the flesh. Well, that's some interesting language, isn't it? According to the flesh. Normally, the Scriptures would just say that he was of the seed of David, or he was a descendant of David, period. But he adds that little phrase here, he was uh, of David according to the flesh. And that phrase suggests a certain element of complexity with regard to who Jesus was. I remember uh, when Beth and I watched the, the series on the life of Christ that some of you have enjoyed with us, The Chosen seen The Chosen. We're waiting for the next season to come out. Hurry it up. Uh, maybe, maybe Easter week it'll come out. But at one point, the disciples were remarking about the stamina of Jesus when Mary commented, oh yes, he's, he's always been a hard worker 
he gets that from his father, both of them. <laughs> and they laughed. Ha, funny. Uh, but amazingly true. When we read the Old Testament, we see this mystery being presented before us. In so many places, the prophets made clear that the Messiah King, the future Savior of Israel, would be from the line of David. But then we read in Isaiah that the coming Redeemer would be God Himself. Descendant of David, God Himself. He said in Isaiah, I am the Lord, your Redeemer, and there is no other. other. Scholars would puzzle over how both of these lines of prophetic ministry would come together. Then along comes Jesus. His mother Mary, who is in the line of David, was told by an angel that she will bear a son who will sit forever on the throne of his father David. And when Mary explains to the angel that uh, he must be mistaken because she eh, happened to be a virgin, here is what we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Nine months later, Mary gave birth to a child whom everyone believes to be fathered by Joseph. Because he was Mary's child, he was of the line of David. But because his conception was supernatural by the Holy Spirit, he was and he is the only begotten, the only begotten Son of the living God. So this is the incredible mystery surrounding the person of Jesus. Mind-blowing, wonderful, but why do we, mostly intelligent people, educated people, why do we believe in something so fantastic? I'm glad you asked. And I'm glad Paul gives us the answer in these early verses of Romans where we find in verse 4 that Jesus was declared, he was announced, he was heralded, he was proclaimed to be the Son of God. And how was that proclamation made? Paul says he was declared the Son of God with power, with power. Not with words only. Oh, Jesus had been declared to be the Son of God with words. Our Tuesday Joy group looked at that last week when Jesus was baptized. Remember that voice came from heaven? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. That proclaimed Him to be the Son of God. That was repeated as well at the transfiguration. But those were just words. Powerful words, mind you. Divine words. But here it says the proclamation of His Sonship came in power By the resurrection, someone said God communicated this through body language, specifically through the risen and the glorified body of Jesus Christ himself. So remember, as you ponder Jesus, as you contemplate the realities of Easter, there are only three reasonable options for understanding who Jesus is, right? C.S. Lewis's great trilemma, either Jesus is a lunatic who should have been in a mental hospital, thought himself to be the son of God, or he was a liar, he was a con man, I guess the greatest deceiver the world had ever seen, or indeed he was who he said he was, the Lord of life, the son of the living God. And I mean, think about it, anybody who claims to be God, anybody who says that after I die, I'm going to rise again, it's the third day, he named the day, and, and come again with angels someday to judge the world, that guy is either a liar, or he is a lunatic, or he is indeed Lord. Where do you stand? 
Jesus gives us some direction on how to answer that question. He said, in fact, you want proof? I'll give you proof. I'll die, and I'll rise again on the third day, and if I do that, believe in me. He said that to his enemies, and I think you would admit that that's a fair challenge. And his enemies took him so seriously, what did they do after he was put to death? They obtained an armed guard to be placed at his tomb to make sure there was nothing funny happening there. But it didn't stop him. Not death, not the Roman guard. He arose, and God cast his vote saying that, yes, Jesus is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. And at the resurrection, he said it with a thunderous voice for all to hear. In the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, you see this simple argument articulated over and over again. Christ is risen from the dead. He's ascended to heaven, and therefore he is Lord. Chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Verse 36, same chapter. This Jesus, okay, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In Acts 5, Peter again says this, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And then later in the city of Athens, Paul said this, referring to the one living God. He says, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So this Jesus we know to be the risen Son of God because he defeated death just as he had promised. Later, later in his epistle, Paul would say this, chapter 10, verse 9. Many of you have this as a memory verse, I think. Can you go to that, Linda? If you confess with your mouth, say it with me. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Strangely, the most important thing about you, every one of you, is your beliefs about and your relationship with Jesus. That's more important than your physical health. It's more important than your income and net worth. It's more important than your political positions. It's more important than your family. He is not just a figure in history. He, this Jesus, is God's Son, the Lord of life. And your eternity hinges on this right here. Will you confess what the apostle writes about and simply affirm before the angels and these witnesses that you believe the testimony and you have given your heart to the risen king. We have a chance now to do exactly that. Our musicians come on forward and we are going to sing together our statement of faith for this day. We have professed Christ already this morning in song. We have professed last week the Apostles' Creed. This last hymn is a statement of belief. It is our creed put to music that we sing. And who do we sing it for? 
Well, we sing it for ourselves to remind ourselves of these eternal verities. We sing it to one another because Kim needs us to remind her about it. We sing it to the watching world, some of whom are in this room today, to say, hey, you who don't know him, here is what we believe, and we hope you wonder why and try to figure us out. Because as you do, like Littleton and West, you may discover things that you never imagined to be true. So for all of these reasons, we recite together creeds, and in this case, we sing together the statement of what it is by the mercy of God we have come to believe about God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's stand. <laughs>